And if you're staying in here with us, you can open to Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. Once again, I just want to say thank you to Angela and Christy and Matt and Bethany for stepping up and leading us in song this morning. Um, deeply appreciate uh, the way in which they led us uh, and the, the heart that I know that they're ministering to us from. Uh, so this morning, uh, we open a new series of messages entitled Ecclesia, Recovering Who We Are. That word ecclesia is used all across the Greek New Testament and even in, uh, at times in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, to translate, the, the, and it's translated in our English Bibles as church or assembly. And so throughout the New Testament, when the Bible speaks about the church, it uses this word ecclesia. And when the Bible speaks of the church, it speaks of it in very, with very vivid imagery. And listen, it is so vital for us to wrap our heads and our hearts around this imagery that the Bible uses to describe the church, God's people, the assembly of God's people. And here's, here's why. Because I think most of us in our culture have a tendency to judge churches based upon what they do. Right, The programs that they offer, the production quality of their services, the types of things that, you can, that they can afford to me as a member of that church. We tend to judge churches in the same way that we judge stores. Right? We judge uh, places that we might shop. Okay? Listen, I had a chance to shop with my wife this week. Now listen, I am so grateful. My wife is not a huge shopper. Okay? Uh, she shops like once a year. Because five days a week when she goes into work, she puts on scrubs. Okay, and so her wardrobe is not very extensive when it comes to things that she wears to work. But during the summer, she says, what am I going to wear? And so she goes to the store early in the summer and she does her annual shopping trip. And so we were kidless this week, uh, which was such a blessing given to us by my in-laws. Uh, and so I went with her on her shopping excursion, adventure. It was amazing. But during that time that we spent together shopping, my wife shopped at two particular stores. She shopped at kinds of stores, big box stores and boutique stores. Okay, So we went into Macy's because my, she, if my wife were in the room this morning, she would tell you she is very picky when it comes to shorts. They've got to be the right length. They've got to fit just right. Okay, Don't want anything too short. Also doesn't want things hanging down below her knees. They've got to have the right fit. And so she searches high and low, near and far for the right shorts. And so she found some at Macy's that she really liked. And so I was the runner. Men, you know what I'm talking about, right? When you're watching the dressing room and she's like, hey, I like these and this size and this, but go, try, go find all the other colors in that size and this style. And so here I am running back and forth between all the different racks of shorts, bringing everything to her, okay? So she's trying them on. She comes out. She makes some selections. We purchase them. But she also went to a little boutique store in downtown Royce City called Anchored Bliss, and she found some clothing there as well that she liked, Okay, so she was in the dressing room trying it on. She'd come out and say, how does this look? Man, you know, I, if you've ever shopped with your wife, she'd probably ask for your opinion. Or maybe not, because she doesn't care what you think, right? But there's other ladies in the store, who are, and she asks them for their opinion, because what really matters how the women see her in that clothing, okay? And so she's, like, trying to get all the ideas of what looks good on her. But in both of those stores, right, there's big box stores and boutique stores. They appeal oftentimes to very different consumer bases, 
But they have very much similarities between them. And here's at least one of the big similarities between big box type chains, department stores, and little boutique stores that are specialty places, right? You can find aisles and aisles and aisles and aisles and aisles of shorts in one place. You might find three shorts in a boutique store. But the similarity between them is that people judge them the same way based upon the quality of their merchandise, of what they're dispensing, of what they're selling, And I think in a very consumer-driven culture in modern America, we tend to view everything through the lens of how we consume it, right? The things that it offers to us. And so there are big box churches, right? We see kind of big box churches that if you walk into a big box church, right, everything's going to feel the same between that church and the next big box church, right? Okay? And they offer everything in big box churches. And they have these little boutique churches, Right? They're a little bit smaller, more quaint, kind of cozy. And they offer a particular experience that people are looking to consume as well. But I want you to know, and listen, I'm not knocking big box, that may sound like I'm knocking, big box churches or boutique churches. Okay? But listen, no matter the size or the style of the church, there are certain things that must be true about that church if it's to be a true church. And listen, the Bible uses this vivid imagery to describe churches, describe the church, regardless of size and style. And over the next six weeks, what I want to do, is, before I go on kind of a preaching sabbatical for the latter part of July and August, what I want to do is drill down into six of these images and take a look at what they mean for us as a church as we seek to plant a gospel witness here in the heart of a very rapidly growing community. I want us to recover who we are. Because there's a tendency to say, well, this, this program over here made this church explode. Let's just adopt that program and bring it in without ever really thinking about the fact that before the church ever does anything, it is something. Right? Before we ever do anything, it's got to be born out of who we are and not who we envision ourselves being, but who God says we are in His Word. So I want to bring us back to that over the next six weeks. Recovering who we are. And this morning we start in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 11 and read down through verse 22 together. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul continues in a vein of thought that he starts at the very beginning of the book as he talks about all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. About how the Father has adopted us, the Son has redeemed us, the Spirit has sealed us. And then he moved that all that thinking upon the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ leads Paul then to erupt in thanksgiving and praise to God in the latter part of chapter 1. And then as he moves into chapter 2, he begins to talk about how we who were once far off, separated from God on account of our sin, that God has made a way for us to know Him. And it's not through our works, through our efforts, or through our abilities, but rather it's by grace, through faith, and in Christ. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved. This is through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's not based upon your works so that no one has any grounds to boast before God or before their fellow man. And then he moves into this section beginning to flesh out one of the implications of salvation by grace and through faith. And it's this, is that what God is doing in the church, the imagery that he uses here in this particular text is this, is that God is creating a spiritual family. That the church is a spiritual family. It's part of our identity. It's one of the images the Bible uses to describe the church. Listen, in Ephesians 2.19 it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're part of God's family. And this imagery of the household of God, it shows up multiple times throughout the Bible. But there's also places where that, that language, household of God, isn't there, but the idea of family is. You go back into Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, and we're told there that God Himself, out of His great love, has predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. So God brings us into His family. Those of us who were once strangers and aliens, God brings us to Himself, adopts us into His family, that we now have a father. Whereas once we were orphans, apart from God. And he says that he adopts us as sons. Now listen, Paul, many of us look at why, and say, ask the question, why doesn't he say sons and daughters? Let me tell you why. Paul's, listen, he's, he's, not, he's not misogynistic, okay? Consider this with me. In the ancient, he lived in a culture that may have been, but he, I don't think he himself was. Because in the ancient world, listen, the inheritance, as it was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, it went down through whom? The sons. Not the daughters. The daughters were married off into other families with their dowries. But the sons received the inheritance. The son received the land. The son received the home. The son received the savings. It was the son whom the inheritance was held for. And what Paul is saying to a diverse mixture of both male and female, saying God has adopted you as sons so that all of you have access to the inheritance of God's promise. That's a, that may be a sermon all in, in and of itself. Okay? But he says there's a family that you've been adopted into with God as your father. And every one of you has access to this inheritance. Now listen, 
in the same way that your biological family, not, did anybody choose which biological family they would be born into? <laughs> Some of us may have wished we could have chosen which biological family we were born into. Can I get a witness? But we didn't have that luxury. In the same way, we don't get to choose the family that we're born into spiritually whenever we're born again. Right? That we're born again into the, God's universal church, the big C church, and this expression of the local church. Okay? Now, listen, in our day and time, you may be able to church shop and move from church to church to church to find the one that offers the best goods and services. But ultimately, God's envision for the church is not that it would be a place that dispenses religious goods and services, but that it would be a family that is bound together. Not by the blood that courses through their veins biologically, but by the blood that was shed upon the cross that binds us together spiritually through our elder brother Jesus Christ with God as our Father. And listen, this, this idea of the church as a family is important because families do at least three things for us. First of all, families shower us with care, don't they? At least good families do. Good families shower us with care whenever there's a need in our lives. The, like, the, 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 the one group of people on the face of the planet that, can, that should not be able to turn their back upon you is your family, isn't it? Right? You should always be able to come home. It should always be a place for you at the table. Because good families meet us in our needs. They provide for us. They care for us. They're concerned for us. They show up whenever it's time to move. I mean, really. That is love. Right? Good family showers with care, and the same is true in the church. Listen, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, it's our responsibility as Christians to love everyone, to care for everyone, to try to help meet everybody's needs that God brings us into contact with. The neighbors on our street, okay? our co-workers in the office, our biological family. But we have a particular responsibility to care for those who are part of our covenant family in Jesus Christ. Right? In the same way, Listen, that as a pastor in this church, I have a responsibility to care for the flock. The elders in this church have a responsibility to shepherd the flock, to care for the needs of God's people, to be in prayer for them. But listen, I have a particular responsibility to the woman that I married and the children that she bore to me. Okay? I have a particular responsibility to them. I have a general responsibility to everyone in this room, everyone on our membership role, everyone that walks through the doors of this church, but I have a particular responsibility as a unique responsibility as a father and as a husband in my family. In the same way, we as God's people, a spiritual family, should shower as many people as we can with care, but we should not neglect to shower God's people who are part of our covenant community with the kind of care that they need in their time of need by showing up by being present. Another thing families do for us is they show us how to behave. Okay? They show us how to live, how to, our, our, what our conduct should look like. Okay? I, I can think back um, on both positive and negative expressions of that in my own biological family. I'm sure you can recall those instances as well. Right? Think about positive instances. I can remember my dad getting up every morning and leaving 
Oftentimes before the sun came up and, and coming home after working in the heat all day long, okay, and I remember his work ethic, the way that he put his hands to the plow and provided for our family by working long hours, okay, and a part of that work ethic, I, I remember seeing that. It taught me the value of an honest day's work, okay, but I can also remember negative aspects of things that I learned that I kind of caught as a part of my biological family. You can remember positive and negative things as well. But the church as a spiritual family, listen, it reshapes the way that we live, the way that we, our conduct, our behavior. Listen, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he says, listen, I'm coming to see you, but if I do delay, if I'm held up for any reason, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul says, I'm writing to give you some instructions so that you know how to conduct yourself as a part of God's family. So Timothy, you will know how to shepherd as, as, as a part of God's church, as a pastor in God's church, but so that the church itself would know how to conduct themselves, how to behave, because families shape the way that we live, don't they? But families also, they also shape our priorities and our values. They shape our priorities and our values. Right? There are things that are important to you today because they were important to your mother or father. That's the reality. There are things that are important to you today because they were important to your brother or sister, because they were important to your grandfather. There may be even things that are important to you today because they were important to your kids as they came up under your care, right? Because families shape our priorities. They shape our values. And listen, I want you to know that no matter how healthy of a biological family that you grew up in, There was some dysfunction there. <laughs> there were some things that were not so healthy there. There were negative patterns that were set for you. There were, there, were, there were sinful priorities that were established for you. There were rebellious behaviors that were passed down to you. So no matter how healthy of a family you grew up in, listen, I know that I'm going to mess my kids up somehow. And they're going to have to unfold those things as they mature into adulthood. I know that. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And so there's going to be things that I pass down to them that I never intended to, but they just pick up on. And they're going to have to unfold those things. But the good news is this, is that God's given us a new spiritual family to help us unfold those things together. No matter how healthy of a family you grew up in, there are things that need to be unpacked things that may be repented of. And God says, listen, what better place to do that than in a new spiritual family? In fact, that's the only place that you can undo some of those things that were done in your biological family. One of the things that means for us as this, as a church, and as Christians, is that we need each other as a part of God's family, for our sanctification, for our maturity in Christ-likeness. Because we are formed by our families. What that means is this, is that the individualistic, consumeristic vision of the church that exists in American culture, you cannot find anywhere on the pages of the Scriptures. You don't find it anywhere in the Bible. That radically individualistic version and vision of the church is not a biblical vision. 
But listen, we are, we're all discipled by somebody, aren't we? And many of us are discipled by our culture and we're discipled by the poets in our culture who are musicians. Right? And so they feed us constantly. Whenever you listen to a song long enough, right, the tune's kind of catchy, the lyrics you can pick up on, but they begin to seep at times their way into your vision for life. I told you last week I tend to listen to some hip-hop music. I know you couldn't guess that. But th- listen, I'm a very, I have a very eclectic music taste because I also listen to country. All right, I listen to some old-school country, okay, like Willie and Waylon. All right, but also listen to a little new school country. Okay, but listen, there's a song uh, by, uh, let me find her name, Maren Morris. And in that song, it's a country song, it's called My Church. Some of you might be familiar with it. Right, when it comes on, you might turn up the radio and sing along. I want you to listen to what she says. She says, I've cussed on a Sunday. I've cheated and I've lied. I've fallen down from grace a few too many times. But I find holy redemption when I put this car in drive, roll down the windows, and turn up the dial. When Hank brings a sermon, that's Hank Williams for those of you not familiar with old school country music, and Cat, Johnny Cash, and Cash leads the choir. It gets my cold, cold heart burning, hotter than a ring of fire, which was titled one of Johnny Cash's songs, if you're not familiar with that. When this wonderful world gets heavy, and I need to find my escape, I just keep the wheels rolling, radio scrolling, till my sins wash away. And the chorus says, can I get a hallelujah? Can I get an amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost running through you when I play the Highway FM, which is an XM station for country music fans. I find my soul revival, singing every single verse. Yeah, I guess that's my church. Listen, that is a radically individualistic, unfounded, unbiblical vision of church. That church exists whenever I get in my car on Sunday morning and I crank up classic country tunes and I drive back roads, just me and God communing through the means of country music. I'll say it again, that's an unfounded, radically unbiblical vision of church. Because the Bible over and over and over again presents this vision of the church as being not radically individualistic, but radically interdependent. That we need each other. Because we will not be formed except by a family. And God has created a spiritual family in the church. Now what kind of family is this? It's a radically diverse family. This household of God is a radically diverse family. If you go back up into our text in verses 14 through 18, I'll read it again. It says, For He Himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Listen, one of the things that becomes clear in these verses is that God is not just in the business of creating new humans, but in the business of creating a new humanity. 
a new humanity. And if you read through the rest of the pages of Scripture, it's a new humanity that comes from all kinds of, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all ethnicities, all races, all socioeconomic backgrounds, the poor and the rich, the black and the white and the brown, okay? The white collar and the blue collar. Those who live on five acres secluded out in the country and those who live on zero lot lines in the burgeoning suburbs and those who live in apartment complexes. Right? Those who have their own pool in their backyards, those who have to go to community pools. Right? All types of people that from all areas and sides of the track that God is making a new humanity in the church. And the way that He's doing that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because through the gospel, listen, here's what God is doing. He's forming a new humanity by killing the hostility that exists between all these groups by creating intimacy with Himself for them. So God creates intimacy with Himself through the work of the cross. And in so doing, as people from all tribes, nations, and tongues are now enjoying intimacy and have one Father, He binds them together as brothers and sisters by destroying the hostility between long-held historic divisions of bringing people together into one body, one new humanity. Because He's made peace through the blood of His cross. See, again, what binds us together is not the blood in our veins, but the blood that fell from Jesus' veins. Because through Jesus, listen, God made peace vertically for both respectable sinners and despicable sinners. (laughs) For both Jew and Gentile. See, in the ancient world, there there was no greater division than that between the ethnic Jew and everyone else. The Gentiles. Right? The Gentiles oppressed the Jews and the Jews despised the Gentiles. Right? God would raise up other nations to come in and judge His people throughout their history and they would move in, they would conquer, they would oppress, they would lead away into slavery and bondage and captivity. And that God would restore them back into their land. That cycle happened numerous times throughout Israel's history. And whenever Jesus is born on the scene, Israel is an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. They're being ruled over by Gentiles. The Romans oppressed the Jews. The Jews hated the Romans. In fact, they hated them so much that there was an offshoot of the Jewish people called the Zealots. It's like a political party of the Jews who thought, we're never going to get our way through the peaceful process. Okay? They were not Martin Luther King Jr., Okay? They subscribed to violence. And what they would do is they would plot and they would carry out assassination attempts on Roman officials in an attempt to undermine Rome's authority. In fact, this this, this division went so deep that if a Jewish child in some circles married a Gentile child, they would hold funerals for those Jewish children because they no longer considered them as a part of the family. There was such deep-seated, historic hostility and division that their children would be dead to them. And a part of the reason was because the law that God had given to His people back in Exodus chapter 20. How convenient. We just finished a series on that. But the the, the commandments that God had given to His people 
It created what was intended to set them apart as a witness to the nations. What it ended up doing is set them apart as being superior in their minds to the nations. Because they had God's law. And because they lived what they considered to be more moral lives. They were more respectable than the rest of the nations. The rest of the nations were more despicable than they. Right? But it led them, listen, not to a life of holiness, but a life of haughtiness. And a life of arrogance. In a life of looking down their noses at anyone who was not ethnically a Jew, who didn't keep the law to their specifications and to their standards. And so they would condemn others, not recognizing that they themselves sat under God's just condemnation as well. If you go to Paul, uh, another one of Paul's letters in um, Romans, Paul says, Listen, whether you're Jew or Gentile, We're all under God's judgment. None of us keep the law the way God intends in Romans chapter 2. And here you find that both Jew and Gentile needed God to step in and intervene and make peace with Himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. So God brought both respectable sinners and despicable sinners together in one new humanity by granting them intimacy with Himself through Jesus Christ, thereby abolishing the the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. See, the condemning weight of the law was dealt with in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that was the figurative wall that separated Jew and Gentile. Because we were clean, and they were unclean, Jews thought. Paul says, no, 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 no. Both of you need Jesus. Both of you need reconciliation to the Father. Both of you, no matter how respectable of a sinner you are, no matter how despicable of a sinner you are, there is peace that's been made for you through the person of Jesus Christ. And listen, I want you to know the same division runs through the church today oftentimes. Between those who think they're more respectable sinners and those who look down on others who they deem to be more despicable ones. That same division runs through the church. And it leads to a division in God's family. When we look at others and say, and, and, and whether we say it out loud or not, verbally or not, we say by our actions oftentimes, what, whom God has received through His Son, I will dismiss because of my respectability. I wonder if that's anybody in the room this morning. But on the flip side, those who may be judged or deemed to be more despicable sinners don't believe, have a hard time believing that the love of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God, the mercy, the kindness of God in the gospel is for everyone other than them. I wonder if that's any of you this morning. For either of you, I want you to know that this radically diverse family that God's forming called the church is a place where both respectable and despicable sinners can be brought together. Because at the foot of the cross, all the ground is level. Listen, there are other divisions that exist in churches as well. And a part of what this says to us is this, that there's no second-class citizens in the church. Right? Whether you're rich, poor, black, or white, 
right? No, no matter what your background might be, there's, there's no second-class citizens. Because the cross strips us of every type of sinful superiority that we might possess, that we might use to look down on other people. But it also, on the flip side, elevates us from an erroneous view of our inferiority. Right? It strips us, of, uh, strips us of our superiority and elevates us from our inferiority so that it puts us all on level ground together. It reminds us, one of the ways it does this, listen, is it reminds us that the biggest offense that we have committed, no matter what divisions might exist sociologically in the church, no matter what hostility there might be, that the biggest offense that we have committed is not against each other, but it's against God. That's what the cross tells us. If it wasn't against God, then God could just all get along. If that wasn't our biggest offense, the cross was not necessary, and we could have just all held hands and sang, we are the world together. But that's not God's strategy. That's not the means that God uses to unite us. He says, things are so bad. The effects of sin are so despicable in the lives of my people that I have to send my son to bring them together. See, the gospel, because of the gospel, this radically diverse family that God is forming, the gospel heals our deepest hurts and reconciles our deepest divisions. Because listen, there are some divisions that are not just little playground spats. I don't know if you remember as a kid, or if those of you who have kids now, they come home, you know, and they got in this little argument, verbal altercation on the playground. Look at their folder signed. Take a look at that. You've got to work through all the reconciliation. I've got to call this, this kid's mom and talk through and it happened. I remember as a kid in elementary school, I got in one fight. Just one. I threw down on them so hard, everybody was just afraid of me after that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Right? Got in one fight. But listen, the next day, this is how, guy, this is how, little, this is how boys kind of roll, right? Next day, you're like, what's up? Like, you want to come over to my house later on this afternoon? <laughs> You're just like best friends, right? Everything's kind of under, it's not a playground. This is, those little playground spats, they erupt for a moment and they just kind of dissipate. This is not what is going on in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not some small playground spat, but a historic division that divided people. Listen, there are some historic divisions in our nation. There are some historic divisions in our nation. Perhaps the most historic is that of the divisions between blacks and whites. Between the majority culture and the minority culture. No matter what skin color it might be. Right? And no matter what side of the political aisle you might fall on. Whether you're screaming with, the, with everyone else, build the wall! Or whether you're on the other side saying, let them in. No matter what side of the political aisle you are on, I, it, I, I want to call you this morning to recognize that even the most historic divisions within American culture that God is not honored by. He is grieved over. Because He's made peace by the blood of His cross at the cost of His Son for people from diverse backgrounds. And listen, we're going to drill down more into that next week. But I'm going to leave you with that this morning. That the most historic divisions, God is not honored by, but He's grieved over, and so should we be.
because it's a radically diverse family that God has formed. So how do we become a part of this family? We close this morning. How do we become a part of this family? Listen, it's only through Jesus. Only in and through God's Son. Listen, this is, again, this is not a we are the world kind of community where it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere, just come on in and we're all just going to get along together. That's not how God envisions the church. Right? If you look at what, what God says in, or what Paul says in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read it to you again. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. But now, in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ, is one of Paul's favorite expressions to describe all that is ours when we're united to to God through Jesus by faith and experience His grace and renewal. It shows up some 81 times in Paul's letters. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But what does it mean to be in Christ? Two things this morning I want to show you, hopefully from this text, and then we're done. First of all, it means this. It means that you can only approach God through Him. You can, there's no other way to come to God. Right? So if you want to be a part of God's family, you have to come to God through Jesus Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross, by the blood of Christ Himself. In fact, Jesus Himself would say in John's Gospel, He says, listen, I am, John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's no one who comes to the Father but by Me. He doesn't say, I'm one way, I'm a truth, I'm a type of life, and I'm just one access point into this great God who's made us all. This cosmic Father. It's not what He says. He says there's one path, there's one road, singular. But the only way to arrive at the destination of having God as your Father is to have Christ as your Savior. There's no other path. Listen, and to, to, to be in Christ means that you approach God through Him. I wonder how many of us maybe grew up in churches where we got the impression that in order to come to God, that we had to clean ourselves up before we came. Which flies t- completely in the face of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by, remember, by grace you've been saved. This is not your doing. You didn't contribute a single good work toward God setting His affection upon you and adopting you as His Son, bestowing upon you the inheritance of a cosmic King and a heavenly Father. You didn't add anything to it. It's the only way to be in Christ. The only way to be or to have God as your father is to have Christ as your brother and your savior. Second, not only do you approach God through him, but listen, you build your life on him. You build your life on him. In verse 20 of Ephesians 2, Paul says that the church, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Listen, the way that God holds together all these radically diverse peoples from all these radically diverse backgrounds is in Jesus Christ. He says, you, like living stones, are being fitted together, being joined together, right? Think about the difference between a brick and a stone. Bricks are manufactured. Stones are quarried. You know what that means? That every brick comes off the line looking the same. But stones that are dug out of the ground, they're chiseled. And in order for a, for a, a structure to be built out of stone, you can't just lay one, slap some mortar, lay another, slap some mortar, lay another, slap some mortar. What you have to do is to take each one individually and chisel it away to fit the space that it's going into. But listen, all of them are aligned and built upon what? The chief stone, the cornerstone of Christ. And so you've got stones of different sizes and stones of different shapes. Maybe even stones of different colors that are all bound together and aligned appropriately to that cornerstone. And listen, if you're going to be part of God's family, not only do you have to approach God through Jesus, but you build your life upon Him. That He becomes the foundation of your life. Right? He becomes the foundation of your life. So you build every decision. You, it ultimately is referenced back to that cornerstone. One of the Purposes of the cornerstone of the ancient world. Listen, your house doesn't have a cornerstone. <laughs> but all ancient structures had a cornerstone. And one of the purposes of that cornerstone was to project lines. And the shape of the cornerstone determined the shape of the building. Okay, so as it projected lines off that cornerstone, every other stone that was fit to it ran in parallel with those lines that the cornerstone projected. And so it was, it was formed, that structure was formed based upon the image and the shape of the cornerstone listen that'll preach right there right your life ought to be shaped and formed into the image of jesus himself that's what it means to build your life upon him is that you don't set out to make decisions you don't set out to set priorities you don't set out to determine your values apart from he and his teaching and as you're formed into His image, and your brothers and sisters are formed around you into His image, all these diverse stones of different sizes, shapes, and colors, God is glorified and honored by these people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and language being brought together and fitted together in such a way that they're building His family. They're building His family. As each individual is building their life. Upon Him. Are you building your life on Him? Are you approaching God through Him? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ has paved the way for you to have intimacy with the Father? Do you, do you really believe that? Do I really believe that? Or are you thinking, if I get too close, he's going to zap me. Like those old blue bug zappers hanging out in people's patios, right? When the bug flies in. If I, if I really get too close, he's going to consume me. Well, listen, apart from Jesus, he would. But through Jesus, what you find is a loving heart of a father. 
you believe that. See, my hope for some of us this morning is the Holy Spirit would do what the Holy Spirit does, is He'd push us. He would say, Jesus has cleared the way. Go, go, go on in. Go on in. Because of Jesus, you can approach Him. You can come to Him. Because of Jesus, you can build your life on Him. And listen, He's the only cornerstone for your life that will not lead you to collapse. You ever played the kids' game Jenga before? You build that little tower and you start poking at blocks all around. Right, and you poke at the ones, listen, you poke at the ones at the top first, don't you? Why? Because if you poke at the ones at the bottom, what happens? What's carrying all the weight? If you, put, if you remove the ones at the bottom, what happens? It collapses, doesn't it? Same is true in our lives. See, when we have a cornerstone in our lives that's anything other than Jesus, when it's removed, if our cornerstone's our job, our health, our family, our spouse, our kids, when that gets removed, what happens? Our life begins to crumble. But if the cornerstone is Jesus, yes, we might be in despair, but we are not perplexed. <laughs> is He your cornerstone? See, only if He's your cornerstone, only if He's your cornerstone, will you be able to bridge the gap between all the deep-seated divisions and hostilities that have plagued our nation and our churches for centuries. The church is a spiritual family, a very radically diverse one that only holds together in Jesus. I'll leave you with this lyrics from an old hymn called The Church's One Foundation written by Samuel John Stone, the 1860s in South Africa, in the first verse of it, he says this, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we're grateful for your son, who has come from heaven to seek us. Then the laying down of His life, that You were laying the cornerstone for Your people, for Your church. That You might bring men and women from every nation and tribe and tongue together into one new family, a new humanity. Father, help us as Your people not to buy in to the radically individualistic vision of the church that exists in our American culture, but that we would see how radically interdependent we are on each other, that we need each other, that we will never be formed any other way. And so that would lead us to plant our roots in a local church, that would lead us to invest ourselves in a life group of surrounded by other people that we could encourage and spur on as they encourage and spur us on, that it would lead us to open our lives up to others, Allow them access into parts of our lives that we'd rather remain hidden so that we might be formed by this new family. And God, would you, as our community grows more and more diverse around us, would you help us as a church to reflect that diversity? 
not only that we would su- submit to that theologically, but we would embrace that sociologically in our friendships. And not only would it be a friendship reality for us, but a leadership reality for us in the life of your church. There would really be no second-class citizens here because the gospel's put us all on level ground. So we'd have people who are members here and leaders here from all types of backgrounds. I pray you'd help this morning those who are more respectable sinners in the room, like, like myself. Father, that we would not belittle or look down with haughtiness upon those that we consider to be more despicable sinners. That the cross would remove all of our sinful superiority. Father, I pray for those in the room who might consider themselves to be more despicable sinners. I pray that the cross would also remove any false notion of inferiority. level us before yourself in and through your son so that before we ever think about what we ought to do we would know who we are we pray in Jesus name